this isn't just some willy-nilly piece of legislation that gets passed along, signed, and forgot about. This is something that 10, 20, 30 years down the line, your kids and your kids' kids can look at this and say, our planet, our state is better because of this. This is a story about passing the most comprehensive climate and equitable legislation Illinois ever has because it's a story about the power of people and the environmental community standing up to fossil fuel interests, standing up to big utilities, and winning. The traditional utility model seeks to provide the opportunity for private profit in order to maximize and try to guarantee the public good, the reliable, affordable, uh, environmentally friendly service of electricity service. Now we have the private guarantee of profit and the public good is left a little bit more up to chance. Welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Joel Ebert. I'll be your host this week. After months of discussions, negotiations, and delays, the Illinois General Assembly has finally approved a new omnibus energy bill aimed at moving the state from using traditional fossil fuels to be more climate friendly. The proposal, known as the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, was signed into law last week by Governor J.B. Pritzker. Proponents of the bill say it will make Illinois a leader on climate while keeping the state's nuclear fleet operational and holding public utilities accountable. Critics, however, say the legislation will result in the largest rate hike in state history, force certain landowners to lose their property to a private company, provide even more money to Commonwealth Edison, and potentially lead to Illinois having to buy energy from other states in the future. This week on the Cloudcast, we try to capture all of that through discussions with one key policymaker and two advocates. On this episode, you'll hear my interview with Senator Michael Hastings, who is one of the main drivers of the bill in the Senate. You'll also hear from Colleen Smith and Abe Scar, whose separate organizations were pushing lawmakers in different ways to incorporate their ideas in the final bill. A quick programming note, each of the interviews will run in succession. Also, my interview with Senator Hastings was done over the phone, rather than the traditional program we use to record on this podcast. So apologies in advance for the less than ideal audio quality. Thank you, Senator Michael Hastings, uh, for coming on uh, the Cloudcast. You are the uh, chair of the Senate Energy and Public Utilities Committee. And so I was hoping to kind of get your uh, brief summary for people that may not have paid close enough attention to this energy bill. Give me a broad and brief overview of what the bill that ultimately was passed and now signed by the governor does in terms of energy. Joel, let me prevent, uh, provide you with the Cliff's Notes version of a 980-page bill in a matter of 45 seconds. Number one, it, it preserves our nuclear fleet. Uh, two-thirds of our nuclear fleet was threatened to be shut off line, and that provides close to 60% of our baseload generation and energy for the state of Illinois. That's an unbelievable amount of energy that would have been turned off and which would have caused our carbon emissions to spike. It would have took 35 years in order for us to replace that nuclear energy with wind or solar energy. Second, it makes an unbelievable historic investment in clean energy resources in the state of Illinois. Wind and solar, hundreds of millions of dollars is going to pour into the state of Illinois for development. We, 
we enacted a coal to solar program. If you travel anywhere across the, the middle part of the state, the southern part of the state, we have shuttered coal plants. These coal plants, there's no economic activity going on around them. We've invested $315 million into a coal to solar program, which will transform these coal plants to solar energy sites with world-renowned battery storage facilities. Fourth, we have sweeping ethics provisions in this bill. If you talk to anybody that lives in Illinois, they've, they've read about it, they've heard about the bad actors in our public utility industry. We want to make sure that there's the most stringent oversight and that those people who cast a dark cloud over our state, that they're held accountable. Fifth, we ended formula rates and we made the rate making process more transparent than it's ever been at the Illinois Commerce Committee. And I guess the last thing I can talk about is just in terms of who we open this bill up to in terms of who can work, uh, who can get jobs. So if you're black, if you're brown, if you're coming out of incarceration, or if you're looking to change career fields, there's tens of millions of dollars for folks to get involved, to learn how to build in this industry, because this industry just is not for the future of Illinois, but it's for the future of our country. So you laid out the main components of the bill, but let's take a step back even further. Why was this bill necessary, right? We've had several energy bills in the past few years. Um, obviously, the, the, the couple in, in you know, 2011, 2016. But why was this one needed at this particular time? You know, we write these bills. Uh, and, and prior to my arrival in the Senate, there was the uh, various energy bills that have passed that set standards for renewable energy, uh, for renewable energy goals. Those standards and those goals just weren't met. And the best thing about the General Assembly is that you can assess the situation, determine where you failed, and then identify where you can succeed at. And the areas of this bill, in terms of wind and solar investment, are just one part of the renewable um, goals that we had. Uh, this investment will help us reach those. So, you know, that's probably one of the best parts is that we reassess, we made corrections. Um, we would have fallen gravely off of our goal if those nuclear plants were to close down. And coming off of COVID and with the economic impact that COVID has had, not just in our state, but our country, closing two power plants in the, in the next year and then two more in the, additional, in the next two years, it would have been economically devastating to our state. And not just because we lost the energy generation, but because we're talking about 30,000 direct jobs. We're talking probably another 50,000 ancillary jobs and billions of dollars in economic impact. And that's unacceptable to let happen. So throughout the, the Senate floor debate, you faced a host of criticisms from Republicans on a variety of different issues. I wanted to take uh, you through a couple of those and, and give you a chance to respond to that. So um, one of the, the criticisms was that the ethics provision in the bill were not far enough, right? That the renewable energy industry won't be subject to the same scrutiny as public utility companies. Why was that provision in the bill in the first place, and, and why uh, do you think it's strong enough? The primary goal was to make sure that public utility companies who were bad actors in the past are held accountable in the future. That's what this bill does. Renewable energy companies aren't public utility companies. I think that was a, a misunderstanding or a lack of wherewithal on the opponent's point of view. But the great part about the General Assembly and the legislature is that everybody has an opportunity to file a piece of legislation and explain their idea. 
And in my committee, we've always hosted anyone, anyone's idea and piece of legislation, and we give it a full debate on the merits of the bill. And uh, if anyone wants to do that, our committee is more than welcoming uh, to hear them out. Another issue you faced criticism for was related to the inclusion of, of a provision uh, regarding eminent domain. Can you explain that component and why it was necessary in your mind to include in the bill? So the way it was portrayed on the floor is that the government's just going to come in and take people's land away. You know, if anyone was to read what eminent domain actually is and how it actually works, they would understand that uh, there's a process, there's a hearing, there's just compensation. Uh, as long as the, the project that's being built is for the public benefit, it's not just the government can come in there and take their land. And, and that's what was deceptive. That's what was dishonest and, quite honestly, discouraging to hear from other legislators around the state of Illinois. And so uh, this, these projects that are coming in are transmission line projects that will allow us not just to import but to export clean energy across the country. And if you look at um, consumer consumer bills, their consumer energy bills, these transmission lines help offset the cost that it would um, to consumers' electricity bills. In Illinois, for those people who made those comments about eminent domain, I don't think they realize that Illinois is probably one of the preeminent leaders in energy generation exportation in the country, and I want to keep it that way. One of the more robust criticisms and continued ones you faced was about the uh, the fact that this will lead to the largest rate hiking increase in state history and, and even potentially force the state to purchase energy from other states after facilities here have been shuttered. What would you say to both of those criticisms, about again, about the rate hikes and, and buying energy from out of state? Well, first and foremost, when it comes to the, the rates, um, initially we've, we've We've assessed it at about a $3.50 increase to the ratepayers bill. However, this is not taking into consideration what the federal package is going to be when it comes out of Washington. Uh, Washington is going to offer substantial nuclear subsidies to companies that operate nuclear facilities. So whatever subsidy we do give to Exelon as a state, if the federal government gives a substantial uh, sum of money to those companies um, as a part of the federal infrastructure package, that's going to offset whatever state subsidies we give. So that $3.50 is not the final number. It's probably going to go lower than that based on that. We couldn't wait for the federal government to act. Everyone talks about government being slow. I mean, Illinois moved pretty quick on this. This only took us about three hours or three years to <laughs> three years to complete. But, you know, so on the, on the price point, I think that's uh, – it's not the final answer. It's, it's not the final solution. What's going to happen? I think we're going to see more action out of Washington when it comes to that. And Joel, the second question, if you wouldn't mind repeating that. Yeah, on on buying energy from out of state. So the the, the gloom yes. and doom concern was that uh, we so shut our plants here and and we would have to buy from Indiana from or wherever else. Yeah. No, it's it's false. I mean, look. I mean, this is part of the scare tactics. It's election season, and and. A lot of legislators that got up and spoke in opposition said, "Well, they got to get reelected, and they got to they got to advocate to who's going to elect them." And one of the you know their fear mongering or sloganeering is uh, is deceptive to folks across the state of Illinois. Quite honestly, it's inaccurate. And we spent the last two and a half years talking about this ad nauseum. I mean, during COVID, it was four hours a week, uh, four hours a day, three days a week. And um, if they didn't want to read it, then that's their problem. They, they chose not to read what was in the bill. Our six nuclear facilities, Joel, 
power 11.6 million dollar 11.6 million homes and it produces close to 140 million dollars annually in property taxes 140 million times that by six and and you can figure out what the total property taxes that they pay over the period of time that this bill would encompass so in the generation if those power plants were to go offline that's when we would have had a problem because two-thirds of our nuclear fleet going offline, yes, that would cause us to import energy from outside the state of Illinois. But because this bill passed, not only are we going to have our nuclear fleet operating, and Byron's been operating at 99.8%, but now we're going to have that substantial investment in wind and solar to help supplement that in addition to our transmission lines. So I feel that we're in a good position and in the state. And not only that, but we also implemented a review process so that we can determine whether or not the baseload that's needed in our state is being generated in our state. Last question I have for you. You alluded to it already. This this bill was years in the making, right? You and others in the Senate spent hundreds of hours discussing and debating various components that were eventually included in it. When the spring session ended and throughout the summer, it looked like the bill's passage some said might be in doubt, right? You had labor groups and environmental groups saying there was an impasse. So I'm curious if you can sort of peel back the the curtain a little bit and explain to us how did this bill finally get across the finish line? What were some of the final components, whether it's between, you know, what was added at the end in the Senate or what the, the House did? Give us a, a view inside that that last minute negotiation. Yeah, well, in May, 95, 97% of the bill was complete. I mean, that's just a, a flat-out fact. And the bill that we proposed from the Senate, uh, and I want to just, I want to give a, a shout-out to our Senate president, who's a, I mean, the guy's a leader. And most people don't give credit where credit's due, I will. That guy's a leader. And Bill Cunningham, a masterful negotiator, wise, the guy's knowledgeable, and he, he keeps order. And, you know, we had a big team. And um, the only linchpin that was left was municipal coal. So you got city uh, city water light um, in Springfield. Uh, excuse me for getting that botched up, but the Springfield power plant and then Prairie State Generating Facility in uh, Southern Illinois. And um, we wanted we had it closed in 2045. That was our proposal that we we submitted. We passed Senate Bill 18, which had that in there out of the Senate. And uh, if we didn't do anything, these talks would have continued. There would have been uncertainty at Byron and all these plants where people are worried about losing their job, having to uproot their family and moving somewhere else. And that's just not right. You got to give you got to give confidence to those folks out there to make sure they understand that these nuclear plants and other things are going to be uh, taken care of. So at the at the last um, the last minute, Marcus Evans, who's a great leader, him Jay Hoffman, got together with Prairie State. And determined that there should be some interim carbon mitigation measures at Prairie State Generating Facility, which would decrease its carbon emission by 40, 45% by the year 2035. Now, if they don't meet their carbon emission reduction by that date, they'll the ICC will determine whether or not they need an extension to 2038. At that point, they'll close if they don't meet it, but I don't anticipate that. I anticipate them meeting their goals by 2035 and then meeting their total zero carbon emission goal by 2045, and I think we'll be in good shape from that point forward. And that's honest. Joe, when you look at it, in a nutshell, that's how the bill, at the end of the day, that was the only hang-up. Anything else you want to say about this, uh, you know, years-long process? This isn't just some willy-nilly piece of legislation that gets passed in the law and signed and forgot about. This is something that 10, 20, 30 years down the line, your kids and your kids' kids can look at this and say, 
our planet, our state is better because of this. And we hope that other states across the country and hopefully other countries take note of and take action the same way Illinois did. That's all I've got for you. So I I appreciate your time and and thank you for, for talking to me and coming on the podcast here. Have a good one, buddy. Thanks again. Joining me now on the Cloudcast is Colleen Smith, the Deputy Director of the Illinois Environmental Council. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Joel. So, Colleen, I wanted to start out by getting you to sort of uh, set the stage for us, right? So the energy bill has been uh, years in the making, and it's had uh, a lot of confluence of interested parties, um, including groups like yours, the Illinois Environmental Council, as well as the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition, the Path to 100, Climate Jobs Illinois, and other advocacy groups that were pushing lawmakers for various, you know, um, ideas to to adopt and incorporate in this. Ultimately, the final version of the bill that is now law receives support from most of those advocacy groups. How did that happen? Well, that's a great question, Joel. And you talk about this being a process of several years, and I might argue several decades. This is a story about passing the most comprehensive climate and equitable legislation Illinois ever has, because it's a story about the power of people and the environmental community standing up to fossil fuel interests, standing up to big utilities, and winning. That wouldn't be possible without the work that groups like Illinois Environmental Council and many of our partners around the table have been pursuing for years to make sure that people's voices are who is heard in Springfield not utility interests. We used that model in introducing the Clean Energy Jobs Act in 2019 after we went around the state of Illinois and had community listening sessions about what communities' vision for a clean energy future looked like for them. And it was that process that we always went back to as a coalition, making sure that we were checking in with communities um, and that this climate bill really represented the values of the people of Illinois. And I think you heard Speaker Welch say something similar in his remarks yesterday and on the floor as well. This is a bill, again, that for the first time in Illinois really was driven by people, driven by communities, communities most impacted by climate change, um, and was not a product of what has happened too often in the past, um, which has been backroom deals with utilities driving what a clean energy future looks like for Illinois. Were you or others from your organization directly at the negotiation table? Uh, It sounded like there was, you know, it it was never quite clear to me exactly who was there. Um, I know you had uh, folks from labor, uh, Democrats, Republicans, environmental groups, but, uh, you know, um, were, were people from your group there? Sure, we were represented uh, by a consultant to the Illinois Environmental Council and the Illinois Clean Jobs Coalition, um, and there were other members of the Clean Jobs Coalition that certainly are uh, affiliate members of the Illinois Environmental Council. The scale of negotiations have taken various shapes over the last three years, as you could imagine. Uh, Certainly when the governor's office had their working groups last fall, there was Many, many, many stakeholders involved in that process, and IEC participated along with a dozen plus other environmental groups um, in that. And then in the spring, 
you know, working to be represented and making sure the environmental community and environmental justice advocates had a seat at the table was critically important to us um, and, and remained so in the waning hours of getting this bill across the finish line. By all accounts, it sounds like the negotiations, though, were, uh, I think, no matter who you talk to, difficult and, and trying at times. I think that's definitely true. Um, it To do something this big is always going to be hard, um, especially when it's something the state of Illinois has never done before. Uh, we're in a space where there's new leadership. We're all aligned on needing to take bold ambitious and equity-driven action on climate change in a way that we have never tried to pursue energy legislation in the past. So as we're charting this new territory, as we're making sure that those values are front and center, um, to get it right is going to take time. And I'm incredibly proud of our coalition of the environmental champions in the legislature who um, have continued to be built up and grown to a larger and larger legislative green caucus over decades um, and the support of legislative leaders and our governor for standing strong and standing firm on a bill that is climate focused and equity focused. I think it would have been a lot easier if we didn't have such high ambitions for this bill. Um, But drawing that line, as I know you've been following over the summer, is what made this bill what it is and why we're celebrating so fully this week with its uh, officially becoming law. Much has been made about the how, how the new law will be a nation-leading uh, law on climate, right? Uh, can you explain how that is? What, what have other states done on climate change and how will Illinois be different under this proposal? Sure. I would say a couple of things. One is there have been states who have adopted 100% renewable energy goals. Um, but what we're doing here is setting firm decarbonization schedules that is at the rate that public health and climate change demand. So this isn't just a goal of 100% clean energy by 2050. This is truly a carbon-free by 2045 date, comparable to California, for example. Um, And it is the single most robust just transition plan by any state in the nation, as well as the single most equitable. Um, When we talk about this being nation-leading, it's not because of any one piece of the bill, even as a standalone, it's because all of these things together is a holistic way of looking at how we need to address climate change in a way that centers communities. Um, It is the most progressive and aggressive diversity initiative and mandate for any renewable program in the country as well. Um, No other state even requires diversity reporting for renewables, let alone goals for the entire industry. Um, The way in which we're focusing on environmental justice communities and just transition and workforce and wealth building. Um, We just haven't seen that at this scale in any individual climate bill that another state has passed. And I think Illinois really is now setting a national model for how we can approach these things in the future, which we'll need to do as we continue to combat climate change. Of course, the the, uh, conversation around equity is not limited to uh, the climate, right? Uh, you've seen uh, that a, a heavy focus on the cannabis industry, 
uh, in, in Illinois here. And of course, the Black Caucus agenda uh, that was largely passed earlier this year to address systemic racism and, and, and you know, um, uh, fix issues that were longstanding in uh, Illinois throughout, uh, you know, banking, uh, education, criminal justice, et cetera. Why was it such an important component to include in the energy bill, though, the equity end of things? Well, for one reason, it's too important not to include it. The idea that racial equity and environmental justice and social equity are distinct issues is false. Um, We have to be tackling these things all together because black and brown communities most often let out of traditional energy workforces are also those most impacted by the damaging impacts of dirty energy. Um, I think we were at a time of racial justice reckoning and with so many advocates in our coalition uh, representing predominantly black and brown communities, that again was a guiding light during this process. Um, I think with the support of many black caucus champions, including Leader Evans and Representative Davis and Representative Buckner um, and, and, and others that I uh, won't name today, we've developed such a comprehensive program to talk about how do we provide seed capital for small projects in uh, disadvantaged communities to get up and running? How do we make sure that the workforce hubs are not just providing training opportunity, but are connecting contractors? with entrepreneurial opportunities? How do we look at soon to be released uh, incarcerated individuals and create um, a new returning residence clean jobs training program? Um, Something that Representative LaShawn Ford brought to our attention over this long three-year process. Um, So it really was, again, about breaking down some of the barriers that have persisted and that we see today when we look at the clean energy landscape. Where are solar projects in Illinois? Who is working on these solar projects? Do they look like the people in the communities that they're going into? Um, We passed the Future Energy Jobs Act, and we're continuing to grow the clean energy economy. And it's critical that with the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, as we begin to see just a huge influx of more economic development into our state for clean energy, that that opportunity, that those jobs are not siloed in any one part of our state, but really are accessible to all. Representative Ann Williams, your old boss, mentioned during the governor's bill signing ceremony that the new law doesn't necessarily mean that the state's work on on climate change is done, right? Uh, So what's next is the logical question. What's next for groups like yours? That is a great question. Um, we, we never stop. There's always more work to be done. Um, I would say right now, while we're p- celebrating the victory of the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, we're also looking to Congress to potentially pass the most climate legislation that they have ever passed uh, in our infrastructure and reconciliation and, and President Biden's Build Back Better agenda we have a real opportunity there to support the state in what we've just passed. Um, we also can start to look at what does economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions reductions mean for the state of Illinois. We've tackled the power sector with this bill. We have more work to do on transportation. 
how do we then look towards commercial and industrial and and eventually even residential decarbonization? It really is going to take economy-wide greenhouse gas reduction to combat climate change at the scale we have to do. So it's a lot of that work. It's a lot of guaranteeing that our municipalities, our state, and our federal government are all working on this issue together and collaboratively and as boldly as we have to. Well, thank you very much, Colleen. Uh, Again, Colleen Smith with the uh, Illinois Environmental Council. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Joel. Really appreciate it. And finally, to wrap up our discussion this week on the energy bill is Abe Scar, the director of the Illinois Public Interest Research Group. Thanks for coming on the Cloudcast. Thanks for having me on. Before and after the omnibus energy bill was signed into law, most supporters talked about how the legislation helped advance the state in many ways toward truly addressing climate change while holding companies like ComEd accountable. Your organization, however, wasn't entirely satisfied with the final version of the energy bill specifically because of one key issue, the rate-making system. So for starters, what is a traditional rate-making system like? Yeah, so you know, utilities are private monopolies that provide a public service. And in order to do that traditionally, the, their income and the way their rate structure is set is highly regulated by state regulators. And the traditional model is called a cost-of-service model or a cost-plus model, where essentially uh, regulators seek to determine the kind of value of the overall assets, you know, all the capital spending, the value of all the poles and wires and every everything that's needed to uh, deliver the electricity to customers, as well as ongoing operating costs, um, salaries and other things that aren't necessarily, you know, uh, ongoing tangible assets, uh, but costs of providing the service. And they calculate that, they add a, you know, a a small profit margin to the value of the assets, and they come up with a total that's called the revenue requirement or the kind of, you know, basic amount of one year of revenue that would allow the utility to cover its costs with a small profit. Um, Critically, um, that revenue and profits are not guaranteed. They, they base that revenue and and rates based on assumptions of usage and, and assumptions of operating costs. Um, and then the utility has to actually perform. And if weather is different one year to another, uh, higher usage or higher, lower usage, that could affect their revenue. And if their costs, if they do have cost overruns, that affects their costs. And of course, uh, like any business, if your costs are higher than your revenue or, uh, you, you won't make your, your profits. Uh, and that uncertainty, that, that lack of a guarantee that the utility, will profit every year is is intentional. It's built into the system that's intended to uh, provide an incentive for the utility to to keep their costs low, to not overspend. Um, And that's been an important part of the system for many years. And as we'll get to uh, what we think of as the radical change of, of formula rates that is still embodied in this new bill is that it actually guarantees the revenue and the profits of the utility. In 2011, lawmakers passed the new energy law that contained the change to rate making in Illinois. What did that do and how did that continue in the new energy law? So in 2011, the Illinois legislature passed the Energy Infrastructure Modernization Act, or IEMA, uh, which was pushed by ComEd. And I wasn't 
active uh, at the time in Illinois, but as I understand it, you know, it sounds like Conrad basically showed up with the bill and was able to muscle it through much different than the process um, over the last couple energy bills. And in it, there was a promise from ComEd to finally address long-standing reliability issues with uh, their system. They've, they've had very poor reliability performance for many years, as well as modernize the grid um, with so-called a so-called smart grid. Um, the folks may be familiar with the smart meters in their homes, and there's also it's basically a layering information technology over the grid so that it's much more responsive um, and can more quickly respond to outages in particular. So that's what they promised to do. And in return for that, they asked for extraordinary treatment with their rates, uh, with so-called formula rates. And there was a number of elements to it, um, but the kind of top lines are that it, it baked in automatic annual uh, rate increases. They did decrease some years, but the, the, the key thing is it's annual and automatic and that it uh, significantly decreased regulatory uh, oversight over those annual automatic uh, rate setting processes uh, and that it uh, guaranteed the utilities profits. Um, as I was saying earlier, there are two ways that a utility may or may not make their revenue and their profits every year based on usage and their revenue. If, if it's a hot summer and people crank their ECs all summer, people are going to pay more in rates and that could re result in increased revenue, as well as on the cost side. If they, they invest more in their uh, infrastructure than they plan to or their operating costs are over, um, that could cut into their uh uh, profit margin as well, or they could even lose money because they're spending more than they're taking in. So formula rates address both of those. Uh, uh, on the revenue side, it's often called decoupling or uh, a volume balancing adjustment, basically saying no matter what the you know uh, revenue, if, if, if usage is uh, higher or lower than expected, we're going to come back and tack on extra money on the revenue side in a future year so we can we can make sure that the the you know a hot summer or cold summer doesn't d dramatically uh, impact their revenue, and that's actually a pretty common thing around the country, and and generally accepted as a good thing because we want we don't want uh, utilities um, to be invested in high usage and high you know high volume of energy consumption is a big driver of overall costs in the system, and we want them to be you know see a value in energy efficiency and lowering. Uh, usage. But then the critical thing is on the cost side and uh, guaranteeing that their costs would be made whole. So just as a example, let's say that um, their operating costs would be, you know, we're, we're tagged at $100 million for a year. That's not the number. I'm just using a simple number for simplicity's sake. But they actually spent $110 million uh, in a given year. With the formula rate guarantee, what they can go back afterwards and say, oh, we, we based our rates for this year based on $100 million in operating costs, but we actually spent 110 so that extra $10 million, we're going to recover that in a future year with a, a interest, a, a, a profit tacked onto that as well. And not only for their operating costs, but also for their capital spending, which again is the basis for their profits that you, you attach the or you multiply the profit margin to the value of their assets. And that's the real key thing that guarantees their profits because no matter how much they spend, um, they're, they're going to be made whole. And you know the traditional 
cost of service model is a spend money to make money model. That's a classic problem with utilities is because their profits are based on the value of the assets. They have an obvious incentive to spend a lot of money on their assets and potentially what's known as gold plating, you know, spend unnecessarily on projects that don't produce value for their customers, but inflate their their uh, asset value and give them higher profits. Formula rates basically supercharge that because those profits are guaranteed. There's not the built-in uncertainty that they won't necessarily get that um, revenue. So um, these are the combination of things that all went into the formula rates um, that are still in place, that were put in place in 2011 and expire at the end of 2022. Now, the new law does change some of that. It's not an automatic annual process, and that's a good thing. Um, we will now have a four-year, multi-year um, uh, rate setting process that's tied to an integrated grid planning process. And all that's great. That's going to, on the front end, the kind of way we're going to set rates and set utility planning, I think is going to be much better. And there's something we advocated for and many of our allies did, this integrated grid planning process. However, the, um, the profit guarantee remains. And that's kind of the key thing of formula rates. If, you, if you're kind of talking at an academic level about what makes a formula rate, um, this, it's technically called an annual cost reconciliation. Um, that remains. And there's, you know, no, as far as I know, reason that this had to remain besides ComEd was able to use their ongoing political power to make it happen and to force this compromise. It's not necessary for the four-year rate plan. It's not necessary for integrated grid planning. There's also some performance standards that are attached to the grid planning. It's not necessary for any of those reasons. Um, I've heard no one actually stand up and justify this policy. Um, in fact, when we raise it and we critique it, people just talk about other parts of the rate setting. Um, new rate setting system, which, you know, we don't necessarily disagree with. There are other good parts of the rate setting system, um, but I've yet to hear anybody defend this policy, which is the key formulary policy, which continues into the new law. Well, you've got some supporters of the legislation saying it ends formula rates. What you're saying is it continues the bare bones or the main components that guarantee profits to ComEd. Remind listeners why this is an interesting time to choose to do that, especially when ComEd apparently influenced the legislature as outlined in the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. So 2011 and in 2013, two major laws were passed uh, to establish this formulary process and to tweak it in 2013 when regulators came back with accounting decisions that ComEd didn't like. And this was the heart of the ComEd bribery scheme. Um, you know, the federal prosecutors and the deferred prosecution agreement that was announced last summer. Um, this was what ComEd used its bribery scheme to achieve. And, you know, the line from ComEd since the deferred prosecution agreement has been sure um, some of our former executives engaged in unethical behavior, but of course the laws we passed were, were great. They were good for consumers and good for the public interest. And we just think that's silly. Um, obviously, you don't put your company, and if you're an executive yourself, at extreme risk um, of prosecution um, for a law that's in the public interest. You do it because 
you have some personal or corporate interest in maximizing your self-interest. And that's the result of the law. We put out a report in December of this year that show that the law has been incredibly beneficial to ComEd. It has um, almost doubled their profit level in around a decade. It's guaranteed their profits throughout that. It has not delivered the benefits that they promised. They, we have seen some improvements in reliability, which is not necessarily a gold star considering they started at a low point and they've now achieved you know, adequate uh, account, uh, excuse me, reliability standards. But all the smart grid promises they've made, they made a lot of smart grid promises. Those haven't come true. So this is when we talk about how it's been a radical flip of the traditional utility model. The traditional utility model seeks to provide the opportunity for private profit in order to maximize and try to guarantee the public good, the reliable, affordable, uh, environmentally friendly service of electricity service. Now we have the private guarantee of profit and the public good is left a little bit more up to chance. It, we're not necessarily guaranteed that. And they've shift, we've shifted all the kind of risks that are inherent in the enterprise, which traditionally are shared by the utility and by the public. And we've shifted them onto the public and either we're going to suffer from lower quality service, which is the example of the smart grid benefits. We're not getting the quality benefits we were promised or in higher prices. And we have seen that a 37% uh, rise in delivery costs, the, the, the side of the bill that goes to um, ComEd. So in this context, and everybody swearing up and down that they were going to hold ComEd accountable, um, it's incredibly dispiriting to me, and I think should be to the general public, that in this context, the key thing that ComEd sought to acquire and did acquire through its bribery scheme is being maintained. And they're not really being held accountable for the ethical harms and the policy harms that they've inflicted on our state over the last decade. Yes, there's going to be some new ethical standards, but mostly those are just the ones that they've already agreed to under the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Um, and it's very unlikely that we're going to see any um, compensation for customers for the uh, you know higher costs we've we've had to pay, and we're going to have to continue to pay um, because this law is going to continue to guarantee their profits and even raise their profits. And we think it's the the single biggest cost driver uh, for the bill going forward. That's a great explanation. Thanks for coming on the Cloudcast, Abe, and explaining this fairly complex and niche but important issue to listeners. Again, Abe Scar, director of the Illinois Public Interest Research Group. Thanks for having me. That's it for the Cloudcast this week. This episode has been recorded and edited by me, Joel Ebert. Thanks again to all my guests, Senator Hastings, Colleen Smith, and Abe Scar. Our next episode will drop in two weeks.